Our Old Testament reading today comes from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Well, it's been said that all great literature is one of two stories. A hero goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town. Uh, this is kind of true with movies, too. Let's, let's, let's try it out a little bit, all right? Um, hero goes on a journey, stranger comes to town. Moby Dick. Yeah, hero goes on a journey. Superman. Stranger comes to town. Yeah, see how easy it is? Good. Um, now let's try this with Palm Sunday. Hero goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town? I'm so proud of you guys. <laughs> My notes say both. You guys are so, see, you guys are so good. It's true, it's both. Jesus' entire ministry is a journey to the cross. And on Palm Sunday, he's a stranger who comes to town. He shows up to Jerusalem essentially as a stranger. Let's read Matthew 21, 6 through 16 to flesh it out a little bit more. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? Or we could add, who is this stranger? And the crowd said, this is the prophet of Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant <laughs> and they said to him don't you hear what these are saying and Jesus said to them yes have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you God that is have prepared praise thank you now God we pray for your Holy Spirit to guide us through this passage on this Palm Sunday that our hearts might be prepared for Good Friday and Easter morning let our minds and our hearts envision this moment in history. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, Palm Sunday marks the beginning of the passion, Jesus' passion. We sometimes refer to it as Holy Week. Um, and tens of thousands of people, for those of you, if just a refresher of, on the background, would have been swelling into Jerusalem at this time of year for the yearly 
Passover pilgrimage to Jerusalem. If you've ever seen the Hajj in Mecca, the yearly Islamic pilgrimage, you know that there are you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe a million people that come into Mecca that time of year. Well, Jerusalem this time of year was the same. The city would have been swelling with strangers and it always made the Romans nervous because of all of their vassal states that Rome had conquered and that sort of paid taxes and tributes, tribute to Rome, the Jewish nation was the most sort of uh, nationalistic in their hopes and prophetic dreams. And the Romans were so nervous about it that they built a fortress that butted up right against the temple with four towers so they could look down on the temple courtyard just to keep an eye on everybody to make sure things didn't get out of hand. And during the Passover, more than any other time of year, Jerusalem is filled, as I mentioned a minute ago, with nationalist hopes and prophetic dreams of independence from Rome. Jerusalem during this time was like a powder keg. And this stranger who comes to town is about to light the match. He is the match. Everything he does from this point forward is incendiary, provocative, and it raises the stakes to a fever pitch. Now, for three and a half years, Jesus has been teaching and preaching and healing and performing miracles throughout the country and the countryside in Nazareth and Galilee, Capernaum, Judea and Samaria, and he has finally come to the place in his ministry where he will formally confront the powers of darkness, formally. The climax of his message is about to take place and Palm Sunday starts the beginning of that period, that week-long period where Jesus raises the stakes to a fever pitch, is going to confront the powers of darkness and the climax of his message is about to happen and as he lights the match in this powder keg, The explosion will change the world. And everything Jesus does from this point forward in Holy Week has deep symbolic meaning. Now, we can't talk about all of it right now in the next 30 minutes, but I want to talk about several of these symbolisms, these these actions that have incredibly deep symbolic meaning, and many of you are familiar with them. I'm going to try to sort of refresh your interest in these events in a new light. The first I wanna talk about is what we call the triumphal entry into the city when Jesus rides a donkey. So let's look with closer focus, verse seven. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them and they were shouting Hosanna, which means save us. To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now, we all know what a triumphal procession looks like. We've, we've seen it before. You know, kings have the instruments of warfare. In antiquity and in you know, ancient times, you've seen kings come in with their armies and they have chariots and war horses and battle bows. And an updated version of that is a lot of totalitarian regimes will do this where you see Russia and China with these massive parades and you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles pointed upwards and all the troops and 
one of the reasons why we don't do that here in America anymore is because it's so typical of like, you know, dic dictatorships. But it really comes from antiquity where rulers displayed their military might and power. But this procession, this triumphal procession looks so different. It doesn't really look anything like what a typical procession of a powerful king with the instruments of war might have looked like. There's no battle bows, there's no war chariots, <clears throat> there's not even a war horse. Jesus rides on a donkey. Now, if you know about horses and mules and donkeys, donkeys are the smallest. They're not animals of war, unless, of course, your enemies are very small and very slow. So he's riding into town on a donkey. <clears throat> and when the crowd cries out this word, Hosanna, which means save us, they do not mean what we mean. So this is a problem of our sort of Christianizing the language of the Bible with our modern anachronistic definitions. We think when we read Hosanna, save us, that they're saying what we say, which is save our souls. That is not what they were saying. What they were saying is regime change. They wanted cultural, political, and national salvation from their brutal oppressors. Right now, maybe... The Ukrainians feel that when they cry out, save us, they want literal salvation from this massive superpower, Russia, who's invading them. So they wanted regime change. They weren't thinking about pie in the sky, where they're gonna go when they die. They were thinking about deliverance from a brutal, oppressive regime. But Jesus has no instruments of war, battle bows, chariots, no army. So what is the symbolism here? What is the symbolism of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey with no army and no instruments of warfare? Well, in a word, the donkey is a symbol of peace. It's a symbol of humility. And of the Messiah, the prophet Zechariah said, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. He, the Messiah that is, will proclaim peace to the nations. So this is a different kind of Messiah, a different kind of king, a different kind of kingdom. Jesus' triumphal entry was a different kind of triumph because he was a different kind of king and he was bringing a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom you cannot see with your eyes, a kingdom that the only way you can behold it is if you are born again and Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3 and 5, unless one is born again, he cannot see this kingdom. This is a kingdom that the world will never care about or think about unless they are born again. This is a kingdom that is spiritual, that has to be seen with spiritual eyes, and to see it, a person must be born again. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. It doesn't care about the trappings of the worldly kingdoms. And it often, here's the challenge for you and I, does not care about the things that we care about. We often care about the things the world cares about, the trappings of possessions and success and achievement and wealth and fame and all those things. And this kingdom is concerned with none of those things. It doesn't mean that God isn't concerned with our welfare and that we have a home and you know, that we have jobs to provide for our family. That's not what I'm saying, but... It just doesn't care about the kind of things that the world says equals greatness. Everything about Jesus' kingdom and ministry is upside down. 
It is counterintuitive. It does not speak to the sense of sort of national pride and military might or achievement and success that we're all sort of plugged into. And this is why it's often so hard for us to really follow Jesus. Because the very things that we are clamoring for in our lives is sort of leading us often in the opposite direction of Jesus. The very things that we define our lives as being successful and meaningful are not the things that God ultimately cares about. So here's an application point for us, okay? What's the application? Recognize that God's kingdom is different than worldly kingdoms. It is an upside-down kingdom with upside-down values and an upside-down meaning and purpose. And it often places us at odds with the world around us. We are a contrast community, which means that while we're like our neighbors, we put our you know, pants on one leg at a time and we go to work and we go to the grocery store, we're different in fundamental ways. And this is, this is I think, what the hardest part of Christianity is. And this is, I think, right now, why Christianity is so unappealing to so many people because it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's going upstream. In a culture with a current going in one direction, it is swimming up the opposite direction. And you know those salmon that swim upstream, it's hard. It's hard to go in the opposite direction of the culture. It's hard to go in the opposite direction of the world. But that's what the kingdom of God is. It's good and bad news. It's bad news because it often means the things that we spend so much of our energy building up will ultimately come to nothing. It's good news in that the things that really matter are eternal. And God is never as concerned with political movements as we are. That was the message for them, right? Their politics were wrapped up in Hosanna in their hope for this Messiah. And Jesus was just kind of like, yeah, I didn't come to call out the Romans. I didn't, I didn't come to call out your government. I came to call you out. <laughs> and Jesus comes to call us out. The second thing that Jesus did is he shut down the temple. He seized the temple. Matthew 21, 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be a called a house of prayer for all people, but you make it a den of robbers. Listen, I preached this passage many times, and I have to tell you, this is one of the highlights, I think, for me, of Jesus's ministry. It's Jesus in rare form where he is acting in a way that we do not often think of Jesus. He commandeers the temple. He goes in without any authority, without any, without, without any granted authority from the temple, <coughs> the people who run the temple, and he essentially, for an entire day, takes over the temple courtyard, and he flips tables over. And he's got a whip, one of the gospels says. And he's driving people out. I mean, you don't think of Jesus like that, right? You know, he's, he's doing the Indiana Jones thing. You know, he's cracking whips, he's taking names, he's flipping tables. He's disgusted at the worship practices of the people. At least this aspect of it. Maybe not all, but he's disgusted with this certain aspect of the people. Now, I don't know that if Jesus came today to our 
community that he would reject everything we do, but there would probably be aspects of our worship that Jesus would be upset about or take issue with, take umbrage with. He would call us out on. I don't know, maybe in the middle of our service he would say, time out, time out, time out. You guys, you've completely, completely gone off the rails here. I don't know exactly what that would be. For the first century, for the people in the first century, what Jesus was calling out was the place that they had set up commerce was the court of the Gentiles. In other words, the Jews had a certain place that they worshiped. It was sort of this inner court, and then the outer court was for the Gentiles, which was for outsiders, for Gentiles, for non-Jews, for people who weren't a part of the traditional community of faith. But they had crowded out that area with tables of money changers and people selling pigeons for commerce and business. And in some ways, you could, you could say Jesus was calling them out for their racism. Say, really? Sure. A lot of the Jews did not want non-Jews in their presence worshiping. They knew that there was supposed to be a place for people who were not Jewish, but their own cultural forms and habits of worship did not make space for people who were not like them. And the word, I think, to us is, to Christians today, is that we have to be careful that what we don't produce is a kind of worship that only a certain kind of people can resonate with. Or when we change up our worship, and I'm not just talking about music, but music as well, we change up certain forms of our worship to include people who may not look like us, and then people start bailing because, no, that's not what they like, that's not their preference, that's not their consumer preferences. The idea that we are creating a place for all peoples. And sometimes it's messy and uncomfortable and it feels weird, right? Because we're creatures of habit and we like certain forms and traditions and habits of worship and expressions of worship, whether it's our preaching or our music or our liturgy or whatever it may be. But the idea that in Jesus' mind, the temple ought to have been a place that made space for outsiders, for people that were not like them. Jewish religion in the first century had become so catered to their own ethnic and national and cultural identity that they had no room for accommodating people not like them. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. This is something that comes from the Old Testament, a light to the nations. But it had become insular and closed off to outsiders. It was unwelcoming, it was unwilling, and it was intolerant. And their lack of willingness to tolerate or even create space for the Gentiles infuriated Jesus. It infuriated Jesus. And Jesus takes control of the temple and he overturns their commerce. And it is a portent of what's to come. Now, some of you are saying, what was to come? Well, the temple in AD 70 was destroyed. Now, it was destroyed by the Romans, but... It was really destroyed by God. It had ceased to be a place where God's vision for worship was being carried out faithfully. Now there's more to it than that, but that's sort of the long and short of it. God's vision is for a place where all nations or all peoples can worship together 
and that wasn't happening. Look at Revelation 7, 9. This is God's vision. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches, palm branches, in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus always confronts religion that has become hard and calcified. People say Jesus is against religion. I don't think so. I see nothing in scripture that says Jesus is against religion. What he's against is dead, lifeless religion, hard, calcified religion that is unbending, unyielding, and unwilling to be able to accommodate the outsider, those that are different. He was confronting a religion that had ceased to throb with the very heart of God. And I would say he confronts each one of us when our own faith ceases to throb with God's beating heart for sinners. It's easy to become insular, self-focused, self-concerned, isolated, disconnected from people. But the very essence of Jesus is his gospel longs to see outsiders, people who don't know Christ, to come to faith. That is the essence of the gospel, the essence of Jesus. They had absolutized their cherished symbols and forms of worship, and it had become, they had become loyal to their own preferences, if I can put it that way. And I wonder if that can't happen to us sometimes also, is our loyalty shifts from Jesus to our own preferences and cherished symbols and forms of worship. Are we like that? Are we more loyal to our Christian consumerist preferences of worship than we are to God himself? The scholar and Bishop N.T. Wright says, what Jesus was doing was setting aside some of the most central and cherished symbols of the Judaism of his day and replacing them with loyalty to himself. And this is ultimately what Jesus wants. He doesn't even want loyalty to a system of theology or a traditional style of worship or a kind of church. He wants loyalty to himself. And when, when there's loyalty to Jesus, those other things will fall into place. Jesus wants loyalty to himself. Maybe we have copied the world so much in its philosophies of organizational success and consumer appeal that in doing so we miss the real heart of God for sinners and outsiders. Whenever we do what they did, which is to absolutize the symbols and outward trappings of our worship instead of the object of our worship, God will seize it and overturn it like the tables in the temple. So here's an application point. It seems simple and elementary, but it bears repeating. Make room in your worship for people different than you. I say this to myself as well. Make room in your worship for people different than you. This means recognizing different cultural expressions of worship is good for the church. It's not too late for us, but it was for them. And this brings us to Jesus' third symbolic action, which is cursing the fig tree. 
Matthew 21, 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves only. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered immediately. Oh, poor fig tree, huh? But cursing the fig tree may be one of the most, if not of these three, the most important symbol. The barren fig tree is a symbol of the barrenness, the spiritual barrenness of the nation. And Jesus' cursing of the fig tree is pronouncing judgment on the nation of Israel in the first century. It is a picture of their fruitless moral and religious life. Earlier in Matthew, when John the Baptist sees the Pharisees and Sadducees, when they come out to inspect him as he's baptizing people in the Jordan River, 16 miles east of Jerusalem, he says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And this was his word to them, produce fruit then in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit, bear fruit, be fruit-bearing. And later on, he said, now the ax is laid to the root of the tree. And Jesus later on said, you know a tree by the fruit it bears. No good tree can bear bad fruit. This is Jesus' words to each of us. And here's the application. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and have turned to God. Let your life bear out the reality of your salvation. Let your life bear out the reality that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. Let your life bear it out. Let your life bear the fruit. Every tree that doesn't bring forth good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, there's a saying that whose symbolism is easily discerned, isn't there? This is the message of Palm Sunday for us. That God does not want us to be fruitless and barren like the fig tree. God does not want our forms of worship to be uh, insular and isolated and unwelcoming. And God does not want us to ever make the mistake of thinking that the world's image of power and success has anything to do with God's vision for those things. In God's vision, power is actually weakness let he who is greatest among you be your servant. And in the kingdom of God, the first will be last. The first of this age will be last. And the last of this age will be first in the kingdom of God. Let me summarize these three for us so that we don't drag on forever here, okay? <clears throat> Riding the donkey symbolizes that this is a different kind of kingdom with a different kind of king. His gospel proclaims peace, not war to the nations, but peace. Secondly, seizing the temple reveals the heart of God for true worship, not calcified by cold religion, but it's religion that makes room for the sinner and welcomes the outsider. And third, the cursing of the fig tree is Jesus' judgment on barren rituals, not rituals, but barren rituals, and worship that doesn't bear fruit. 
Well, Jesus rides into our lives sometimes as a stranger, doesn't he? Sometimes he is at work in our lives in ways that we don't recognize. And in so doing, sometimes we don't recognize him. We don't recognize sometimes that the things in our life is actually God at work. Sometimes when things fall apart, it is not Satan, but God himself. Brushing aside some of our hopes and dreams because maybe they don't align with his vision for our life. And he's a stranger to us when that happens. It is hard for us sometimes to recognize God in the most difficult things in our lives. I want to encourage you this morning to regularly pray, God, your will be done. Every day pray that. I think some people are afraid to pray that because they know what it means. But let me tell you something. You never, you'll never regret praying, God, your will be done because, yes, your plans may, be, may fall apart. But when you see God's will done in your life, you'll be happier and more joyful You'll be filled with that sense of satisfaction, a deep sense of joy that your own plans, your own dreams could never accomplish for you. God, your will be done, and when your will is done, help me to recognize it and rejoice at it. My prayer for you this morning is that his will be done in your life. You don't have to be afraid to pray that. Why? Because our God is absolutely sovereign and absolutely loving. God, your will be done in my life. These are my hopes and dreams. This is what I want. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. We'll see that on Good Friday in Gethsemane, how Jesus himself had to wrestle with that. How Jesus himself had to wrestle with his own human will, the will to avoid the cup of suffering and the will of the Father. The victory in Gethsemane means our salvation. You and I can be assured of our salvation because of that moment in Gethsemane when Jesus surrendered his will to the will of the Father. I want to encourage you this morning to surrender your will to God. At this very moment, God is up to things in your life that you're not aware of. And some of the bad things are actually God and some of the good things are not God or at least the things that appear bad and the things that appear good. Palm Sunday is about a triumph, but it's not how the world defines triumph. 2 Corinthians 2.14, and I'll end with this passage. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, but thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. We bear fruit. We open our hearts to those not like us. Why? To make Christ known. Christ is leading right now a triumphal procession, and we're his captives. We're his happy captives. We've been conquered, our hearts, our sinful hearts have been conquered by his grace and love and we are now his captives spreading his aroma and the knowledge of him everywhere we go. Our lives do that. So on this Palm Sunday, I wanna encourage you to recognize that God is at work in your life. God is bearing and causing you to bear and yield fruit 
for his glory, even in the hardest things you endure, even in the things that visibly seem like failures or hardships or pains. God is at work. Let's pray and give thanks. Father, thank you now for your passion. The passion of Jesus who during this holy week entered into the hardness of ministry in a way that brought a confrontation with the powers of darkness. And Father, our lives, oh God, at least some of us, are experiencing that right now. There is a confrontation with the powers of darkness, and for others, we have never been able to achieve the things in our life we have wanted, and it may very well be because we've kicked against the pricks. We have refused to bow the knee to your kingdom and instead pursue our own kingdom, our own longings, desires, and agendas. Help us now, O oh God, to recognize the king who rides in lowly and humble and worship him. In your name we pray, amen.